0: The simple way to describe what I did throughout my career up to this point was I tried to use the ability to program, but also be technical as the superpower and not the core competency. And if I looked at it that way, what at the end of the day, it was um, going to be the thing that allowed me to move up or manage more responsibility or just basically have more impact. But I could do it in a way that most people at the highest rung of um, the tech industry weren't able to do. Um, Particularly when I was younger, almost everybody who was a CEO was a former marketer or a former salesperson. And most of them were salespeople. And, you know, I think that's part of the early to mid 2000s challenges where there was just bad companies and really poor decisions being made is that you lack technical experience at the top. I think we're recently, you know, past seven or eight years, seeing a lot more technical people um, start taking over companies. And I expect we'll see even more of that in the future, because it becomes the primary mechanism by which you have value, um, add value or have value inside companies.
1: The UiPath 2022.4 release brings automation access for all learn new skills, focus on critical thinking, and enjoy value-added work. They welcome robots on Mac, semantic automation through Clipboard AIM, a new attended framework, and more. Read on and learn more at the uipath.com slash blog, and we'll have the full link for you in the show notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Matt. Hey, Matt. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. So we have a great guest today. Uh, Matt, when I think of tools and uh, platforms that developers use, Stack Overflow and GitHub are kind of at the top of the list. Um, So today we have a pretty exciting guest, Jason Warner, who worked as the CTO of GitHub and now has gone into the venture world. Um, Matt, have you ever used another Git tool or has GitHub always been the one that at
2: the companies you were at. GitHub is kind of like the first thing you learn <laughs> like, when you're going through university. Like we kind of sat down yeah. by lecturers and being like, great, so we know you want to get up and running, but you should really figure out what GitHub is. And then, you know, you get, it's it's actually quite interesting because GitHub is one of the first things you know, but the people who actually do know how to use GitHub well or Git right. well is is very different from the people who just kind of skated by
1: yeah exactly at this point it's just like opening up the terminal like even when they gave us a little software lesson in stack overflow when you join you can you know learn how to code that was like first week of class get yourself github figure out how to use it that's going to be essential all right well let's get going no further delay jason welcome to the podcast hey ben hey matt thanks for having me so we always ask folks at the beginning you know not to date yourself but just to give people some perspective how did you get into the world of programming? Like what first attracted you to that? And um, yeah, give us a little bit of a taste of sort of your journey um, to, you know, a role as senior as CTO.
0: Um, So I had a,
1: what I would consider
0: a non-traditional path to programming. I didn't actually start programming until I was about 17 or 18 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I started in, I grew up in Connecticut in farm country, Connecticut. And the only reason I actually got into computing was the town I lived in at the time in Connecticut IBM was there and they offered a tax discount for hiring high school co-ops. So my auto teacher, which is actually how I got into this, uh, told me I should apply for this because I'm exactly the type of kid that should benefit from a co-op like that. So I literally joined IBM to carry printers and computers around the building and hook them up. And they eventually said, hey, if you you know go to school and figure out uh, how to program and learn computer science, we'll give you a job when you're done. And so I literally started trying to figure out what computer science was and start learning programming. So that was kind of my entry into it.
1: That's very cool. So yeah, you could have gone to the 4-H ag co-op, you could have done uh, auto repair, but in your case, you started lugging around uh, printers and that that led you to programming. and that's neat. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. The only way I got into
0: programming is able to pick up printers and carry them around and plug them into token ring networks.
2: It's refreshing hearing a story that isn't neopets or tumblr to be honest i think you're one of the first guests we've had that have has kind of like stumbled well, legitimately probably into the group. than
0: both of those at this point too so <laughs> sure. i lived through the first dot com crash i graduated right into it so yeah
2: mm. which is you know interesting times now too you joined ibm in 1995 which was you've, you've had like a very good career in tech so far yeah
0: 95 was when i graduated high school started college and that was my high school co-op with them and I stayed with them throughout um, with a quick nine-month diversion to do MITRE, which is a, like a defense contractor. They did um, like flight simulators. So I did flight simulators. Oh,
2: wow. Cool.
0: Nice. And then I stayed with IBM afterwards, worked on the 2000 Olympics system, and then left to do a startup company. I joined a video streaming on the internet company in 19, like late 1999, and then got laid off the day before Thanksgiving 2000 there.
1: so. Mm. Interesting. So, um, we've been talking about this a lot on the show. I was a senior in high school uh, when the dot com bust happened. We're very curious, like looking at what's happening now in the crypto world, there's been a washout in tech stocks generally, but I think in crypto, it feels more like a big sort of boom and bust cycle, more akin to the dot com days. How would you compare the two? Like, do you see similarities and do you see stark differences?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is obviously a nuanced topic and perspectives are going to matter and all that sort of stuff, but there's, there's no world in which I think what we're about to go through, um, what we already is already happening to us at the moment. What we'll also see in the next couple of months to a year will be anything less than what we kind of all experienced in 99, 2000, 2001. Um, mm-hmm. The difference being that back then the internet and the internet companies that you might consider to be today tech companies were the anomaly. Now they're they're the tech economy. So we're gonna ha- we're gonna be able to weather it in a, w- in a way that we couldn't in 1999, 2000. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to be any less devastating for the people who have to go through this and understand that it's not a short blip like two, like 2020 was right. when COVID struck and we all thought it was the end um, of modern tech and you know two and a half months later we ripped back all the way to these those COVID highs. That's not what's going to happen here. And in particular, crypto. Yeah, we've had crypto winters before, not like this. Mm-hmm. This is different. The crypto market and the main main street market and the and Wall Street they're all correlated it's all about dollars available to people to invest and speculate on. And what's going to happen, and you're already seeing it, is that people are going to fly immediately to where there's safety and less risk. Right.
1: We are hiring at Stack Overflow. No, we want to be empathetic <laughs> to people out there. And I, I think that Matt and I have talked about this a bunch recently, which is that there is kind of this, there's like the almost this weird juxtaposition of a lot of layoffs happening and a lot of companies where Base salaries are going up and competition for talent is very fierce, and open positions are innumerable. And so, right, it won't be sort of the dot com days when people lost a lot of jobs at software shops, then it was difficult because the number of sort of software jobs overall shrunk. I don't think that, as you point out, is going to necessarily be the case these days, but they may have to return to more traditional industries. Um, as opposed to sort of like the bleeding edge ones.
2: I would just want to add in here as well, for our younger generation of audiences, would you be able to do a, a very quick summary around what the dot-com bust was and then how <laughs> it might be compared to what is currently happening with the crypto market and stocks and everything else? The easiest way to
0: describe what the dot-com bust was is a major speculation market around internet-based companies um, that bled into tech as well because you know there's a, a hyper uh, exuberance around all these companies, the race and to to the IPO to get liquidity on the public markets and to get there. It's not unlike what we saw last year, even with a lot of the SPACs and a lot of the the crypto Mm -hmm. companies kind of racing to get their tokens out there and get their liquidity via the tokens. Right. The, the difference, again, like going back to what we were saying earlier is that Mm -hmm. once the bubble burst in 99, 2000, people fled from the internet companies. They went, they tried to go back to more, traditional assets, Main Street assets, as you would you might say here, the traditional assets are now going to be in, in 2022. They're going to be Microsoft. They're going to be Apple. They're going to be those the, those types of companies, which in 99, they got hammered. Oh, those types of companies just got hammered. Crypto, though, I mean, the the, the blue chips, the Bitcoins, the Ethereum's, the certain types, they're going to be fine, you know, but, you know, Let's just be honest, 90% of all things that have been funded in crypto in the last two years are absolutely garbage and they shouldn't exist in the market, but they exist. And a lot of VCs and a lot of founders are going to make out. Andreessen is going to make out. They already got liquidity from a lot of their garbage tokens that they pumped and and a lot of founders are going to do well, but a lot of employees are not. A lot of employees are going to get washed out completely and a lot of retail money is going to get washed out completely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's unfortunate. And it does seem like, you know, the most sophisticated ones are always a step ahead when it comes to some of the speculative stuff. All right, let's drop back for a second. I kind of derailed us because um, you mentioned .com. When you were getting started at IBM and then some of these uh, earlier uh, other shops you worked in your career, what languages and platforms were you most interested in? What were you using? What were the tools kind of available to you at the time? I, I did, Again, going back, I didn't really know much. So I was kind of mm-hmm. diving
0: into what was available to me. So literally the first line of code that I ever touched, just like many people would have been basic. So because Mm -hmm. I had it available to me and I could use it. um, And, uh, but the second line of code that I ever touched was in Lotus notes of all things. Um, And many people don't even know what that is anymore, but (laughs) IBM at the time used it for everything internal. So I was doing Lotus notes things. Um, Then I started to get, when I got to college, um, I started to do things. That's when I, I started getting exposure to like assembly and C and um, all of those types of things. And Linux wasn't a thing yet. And then when I first found Linux was in some sub community inside at Penn State where I did my undergrad, uh, and that is when I started to realize there was a lot of other programming languages available to me. And then the open source world opened up, and I started doing things like Perl, um, as an example.
1: Yeah, I don't really know Lotus Notes, but my my impression of it is that within enterprises, it was kind of transformative and there was email and there was databases and there was, um, you know, replication and, and, and people hadn't really um, had that level of utility, but also it had sort of almost like a, a consumer feel to it as opposed to like an enterprise feel, right? It, it did. It was at the time, I have to say, I got to give it credit. At the time, it was kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, it was
0: heavy though. It was one of those things where you click on something and it takes you literal you know, tens of seconds for the next screen to render. Um, but it did have a lot of functionality. It was fully bundled. At the time, we were just coming off of um, you know, mainframe era into client era. This is client server was talked about quite a bit. This was one of those tools that really tried to recreate like the entire coupledness and entire suite of tools that a lot of mainframes had into a desktop client server application. they did quite a good job. It became everything to everyone who would would buy into that ecosystem.
2: We've spoken quite a lot to um, technical folks moving around in their careers, whether that's from an individual contributor to a manager or vice versa and back again. Um, Mitchell Hashimoto, who we had on the podcast, basically worked his way down the rung to get down to an IC position, which is a really interesting discussion. But what I'm very curious on is that you've had you know, a very extended history of being in very technical roles, head of engineering, um, you know, worked at Canonical and Heroku, GitHub, all, all these things. But you've since moved into a managing director role at Redpoint, which is very much involved with investments and, uh, you know, growing companies. So like as, as an engineer, as somebody who's technical, can you speak to the transition from going from that technical aspect to something very much more finance orientated?
0: Yeah. So I, I think the the simple way to describe what I did throughout my career up to this point was I tried to use the ability to the ability to program, but also be technical as the superpower and not the core competency. Mm. And I looked at it that way. What at the end of the day, it was um, going to be the thing that allowed me to move up or manage more responsibility or just basically have more impact. But I could do it in a way that most people at the highest rung of uh, the tech industry weren't able to do. Um, particularly when I was younger, almost everybody who was a CEO was a former marketer or a former salesperson. And most of them were salespeople. And, you know, I think that's part of the early to mid 2000s challenges where there was just you know bad companies and really poor decisions being made is that you lack technical experience at the top. I think we're recently you know past seven or eight years seeing a lot more technical people um start taking over companies and i expect we'll see even more of that in the future because it becomes the primary mechanism by which you have value um add value or have value inside companies but you know i just kind of looked at it that way um i also think that as far as programmers go one i got a late start so i had a little bit of uh worry about my ability to hang with other people but two i i genuinely thought i was probably an average developer i have since come to learn that i very much was an average developer but i was an excellent excellent architect it's the difference between programming and engineering i was an average programmer but an excellent engineer you know systems and it's just the way my mind works my mind's more of a distributed systems person and you know or you know human systems that our organizations are no different they're just as i say they're just lossier versions of computer distributed systems. So I happen to know how to manage those well, but weirdly intrinsically, I knew how to scale them. I knew how to operate them. And I knew how to make them more efficient because of the stuff that I did on the systems programming side. So that's a weird way to answer the question, but I found myself um, doing that well. Now going over to the, fi- uh, the finance side is the thing that I've always had now given, I've been doing this uh, in venture back startups for over 12 years, is honestly VCs don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're backing. They're looking at a spreadsheet. They don't understand why technology is important. The excellent ones do, and a lot of them get incredibly lucky. But if you notice the VC's track records, there's very few people who have more than one successful investment. And there's very, there's, it's very well known that very few people even get into a carry check on that side of the fence. So that's one side. You know, It didn't seem like it would be that hard to step into it and have some fun. The other side of it, the real real reason is entrepreneurs deserve better. They deserve to have somebody who understands what they're building and why they're building it and really what comes next. What are some strategies to employ, how to build the company, what this technology can impact, but also what could go wrong and how to mitigate those things. It's all what CTOs and CPOs do on a regular basis. And I don't think they had partner on the other side of the table from the financier side at all.
1: Right, right. That's fascinating. So let me ask you this, and I, I don't mean this in a jesting way. What's it like to be the CTO of one of the most widely used developer tools and also consider yourself, you know, a mediocre programmer? Obviously, architecture is very important, but I I get the sense it was already built when you got there. So how did you approach that job? And for the years that you were there, how did you see the developer ecosystem sort of grow and change? Well, GitHub was an interesting place because I was also the CPO. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. So I had product engineering, design, security, data, infra and support on day one. Um, eventually I ended up running decently, decent portions of marketing and, and I had talent partners as well. So I had a very weird role at GitHub. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of my time was actually spent on the product side of the world. What should we build? What should we build? And why should we do it? So GitHub actions, um, packages, uh, advanced security analytics, um, all of those types of things. And eventually even, you know, co-pilot and code spaces and things of that nature. Um, So I spent a lot of my time on that. But we did have a lot of architectural challenges too, and GitHub was blessed with two things when I joined. One was obviously a thriving developer community that was already on it, but a stellar, stellar, stellar infrastructure group. And that infrastructure group was just you know, world, world, world world-class. But GitHub was hitting scaling limits. And so I did sit down with them and talk about ways in which we can mitigate the scaling limits and, and really take GitHub from a site where you could collaborate on software to a full-fledged end-to-end software development platform that can scale all the way to, to the planet, and you know I think when we I joined we were signing about ten thousand people a day and we had um, just around twenty million uh, accounts and you know one and a half to two million daily active users so incredible but when I left uh, we had um, it was something like I think it was like fifty thousand daily signups. Um, 7 million daily actives or something close to that so you can see like we had this growth in that curve unlike anything we had before that we really had to work at to scale that system now the infrastructure group as i mentioned was stellar and world-class filled with excellent programmers but the fact that i could actually sit there and listen and actually contribute to like overall architectural approach too is something that was incredibly important
2: i mean this is something that I, i think a lot of engineers go through where they doubt their programming ability at one stage or another. Like moving through that process of realizing that you were um, perhaps not the most uh, gifted programmer, or that wasn't kind of where your um, where your natural skill set lied to going through the distributed systems. Like, is that something that you've come to peace with over the course of your career? Be like, you know what, programming, like I can do it, but I actually prefer doing the distributed systems. Like, what advice could you give to others who are trying to kind of find their way within the software development space? One, I have come to peace with it because I think that
0: I've taken a much more uh, holistic view to what it takes to build successful companies mm. um, and I, I've kind of used this a couple of times and I'll say it here more publicly but programming if we were to to, team, to to bring this out to a team sport type of aspect I'm just going to use basketball mm, here, yeah. programming might be shooting but engineering might be rebounding and architecture might be passing and assists and things of that nature. But we only really in in the industry think about this from a development perspective as the ability to program in an individual aspect. But if you think about it from a team sports perspective and winning the championship, you talk about, you know, the, the overall makeup of the team. What do you have? What are your rebounds, offensive, defensive, what are your, you know, three point shots, two point shots, percentages, all of those things. So in that way, you start to realize that it's not just about the singular act of programming. There's a bunch of other things at play. And I'll I'll back this up again by saying I have, um, when I was at GitHub, we had a bunch of staff engineers, um, but some of them, they, they weren't the singular archetype. There wasn't just give them pizza, leave them alone for three weeks, and they crank out all this code individually. Yeah, we had a couple of those that were staff engineers, but there were several people who were literally, yes, they were good, maybe even bordering on great programmers, but their superpower was their ability to understand exactly where something was going to blow up. And they had that hair in the back of their neck feel because they understood the system itself as well. And they didn't get in every day and crank out hundreds or thousands of lines of code. They stopped other people from making massive, massive mistakes at scale.
1: Yeah. I think that what you say there is a really good point. Um, There is kind of this stereotypical almost uh, caricature of software engineers which you know we see in films and television and i think also people assume the larger the organization you know or the more central to developer culture the more it would hew to that but um as we know programmers like everyone come in all shapes and sizes so important to reiterate that i think so let's chat for a little bit you know you mentioned earlier on your sort of thesis on vc which is that entrepreneurs and investors, your LPs deserve better. That is to say, someone who's been there and built stuff, you know, and kind of has that experience, can look over, you know, maybe a pitch deck and and sort of evaluate the technology on more than just the financials. So what uh, kind of companies have you been drawn to? Um, Let's start there and and then I have a follow-up.
0: So in general, Redpoint, one of the reasons I I like Redpoint, aside from the excellent humans that they are in their own history and track record of investing in some amazing companies is their focus tends to be on um, infrastructure in high tech companies. So I'm attracted to those types building fundamental plumbing layers of the internet or next generations of software, all that type of stuff. And I, I, m- what I invest in and what I look at is infrastructure, not just dev tools, but like all infrastructure companies. Some recent examples of that would be Redpoint invested in a company called Cribble, um, which is, if you, if anyone knows what this is, you'll understand what I mean by this, but it's, you know, sure to visibility, tracing kind of an analytics, uh, insights. Um, platform, uh, a bunch of Splunk people roll out of Splunk and are building what you would consider to be the next generation of that. Plus, you know, my personal investment that I've made at Redpoint up to this point is um, Alchemy, which is a crypto infrastructure company. Again, like you think about it, it's perfect. It's exactly a brand new thing has emerged in the market, uh, emerge in the world. Um, you know, they're doing fundamentally new and interesting things. You know, I, I invest in that and help them build that out and scale it to a degree that no one's ever seen before. Right. I,
1: I, yeah, I want to, I want to. Pull that thread a little bit. Was Alchemy mentioned in um, the post from the signal founder? I feel like I remember that name. Was that there was a really interesting post from um, Moxie Marlin Spike? And I feel like I believe it was. I, I can't yeah. remember it myself, but I think it might have been. Yeah. The the interesting thing there was kind of, you know, the grand thesis of Satoshi was that everything would be decentralized and everybody would be running their own node and part of this big system. But you know, when we when we get back to brass tacks and people want a mobile app that works. You know, actually, there's a bunch of people who are building the infrastructure and most people's experience with their wallet is being run through Alchemy or another one of these infrastructure providers. I had
0: a tweet a long time ago. It's the old Scooby-Doo tweet um, the <laughs> meme, it, but it was, you know, I basically said the greatest trick the crypto community ever pulled was rebranding decentralization of san- centralization or vice versa. Right. I can't remember exactly what I said, but all great decentralized products need a centralized person to make it accessible. It, you you go back through the history of this, and that's actually something that I looked for. Is hey, this is someone talks about this being decentralized. What's the centralized component of this that I can invest in? Coinbase, GitHub, Alchemy. I mean, the, fundamentally, this, this this pattern repeats itself. You're never going to get to a fully decentralized system. It's one of those. One of the reasons I had a big problem with the original Bitcoin paper in general was it was academic and it wasn't practical.
1: Yeah, Alchemy and Infura were the two that he sort of mentioned uh, when he looked under the hood. He was kind of. Not surprised, but like, you know, wanted people to understand that uh, as a casual user who had, you know, sort of drunk the Kool-Aid, you might not be getting the experience you have come to believe. There's always some layer of centralization that will happen.
0: This is an actual um, topic that we we talk about inside Redpoint, but in general inside of all the crypto community, too, is people theoretically want to get to this um but practically speaking you can't and if you ever do if you actually cross a rubicon to get to a decentralized enough you actually everything atrophies because now decision making is too diffuse and you get into the lowest common denominator and actually ethereum is suffering from this right now ethereum can't move forward fast enough because right. it has tried to f- to fully decentralize decision making italic can't unilaterally make a decision which many people say is good except it's going to cause them all sorts of manner of pain and they're going to fall behind
2: Is someone who's more interested, I guess, in the infrastructure or, um, if I'm phrasing this correctly, the the tools to facilitate these processes and technologies from becoming mainstream and, and scaling to where they need to be. Like, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing that space right now in order for mass adoption to happen in order for things to be functional and have tangible benefit to kind of like the everyday person?
0: So my general view is that um, people will give up um, fundamental quote unquote rights in some cases for easy to use. And again, like, you know, crypto and open source actually are very analogous um, type of movements. Um, just crypto has a hyper-financialization aspect on top of it. But many people theoretically wanted open source to mean everyone could view the source code on any fundamental component they wanted. And you would give up experience and usability to get that turned up No one gave it. I don't know if you can swear on this podcast, but no one gave a right. uh, whatever about all of those things that Stallman really thought were were to be true. They wanted an easy to use package, um, and it could have been open source under the hood. But if it was, you know, two percent harder to use, let alone two twenty times harder to use, no one was going to use it. Crypto suffers from this at the moment itself. The UX and DX in crypto is atrocious no one's gonna wanna manage their own keys and um, passcodes and all that sort of stuff. And it's just fundamentally people are, they're in their Richard Stallman of open source phase right now, which is you're wrong about what people are gonna care about. It also happens to suffer because it's hyper-financialized, massive security vulnerabilities, and no one wants to lose their entire net worth because somebody figured out how to uh, hack Axie Infinity.
1: Sure, write a better smart contract. You mentioned open source there. What's your experience been like with that over the years? When you were at GitHub, for example, and you were focused on product, did you get signals from the open source world or from the number of stars? Like, how do you look at the open source world now? A couple of times recently on the podcast, we've had discussions about how a number of folks in the venture capital space, for example, have chosen to define themselves as open source investors. You know, that's where they see the opportunity. Follow the developers, and you'll get to the next big thing. Do you agree with that sentiment and tell us a little about your experience with open source? Sure. I've been to open source
0: world for, for a long, long time. I mean, mid nineties, when Linux started to come out and then the Python communities and things like that. And then eventually rails, um, and Ruby, I, I think in general, the philosophy of following developers is the right one. Um, they'll lead you to what will be next. They'll start, but you gotta understand what they're, why they're doing it. So nights and weekends where they're going to spend their time is always going to be interesting. Um, And then what they're using to solve the largest problems at scale will be interesting. But there's a vast in between, which might not be that interesting. And this is where I think a more technical developer oriented person would be able to suss that out. Uh, One of the things I felt like in the past 10 years or so, as people started to realize that developers mattered, was they tried to fund every sort and every type and every single open source project out there. And that's not every open source project deserves to be a company, let alone can actually be a company. Um, and that's where I think that things kind of went wrong for a little while. But I think the general rule of following developers is the right one.
2: I'm, I'm curious as well, just as an aside, was there anything in particular that you really wanted to kind of like own in on today during today's podcast? Any kind of like particular topic about VC work or GitHub or anything else that you were really chomping at the bit to talk about? No, I mean, for me, I, the only thing that I ever wake up thinking about um,
0: ever is... What is next? So I talk about developers, I talk about infrastructure and I talk about what's coming. My favorite topic of all time is always what's possible. Um, but that's a different view, um, maybe too too long for a podcast. No, I would say that um, no particular topic other than if uh, any, I don't, I, I don't necessarily need to be working with you, but any younger entrepreneurs right now, um, and you're building a company, uh, take seriously what people are saying about the downturn in the market. Maybe uh, maybe one big takeaway at the moment. Give some financial discipline aside, your organization, start figuring out how to make some money, tighten up your operational controls and uh, take it seriously. It's not going to be, we're not going to be getting back to a funding environment, in my opinion, probably for years that look like 2020, 2021, but for the next 18 to 24 months, very likely uh, you're going to have to, it's going to look very different than you've ever seen.
2: So what advice would you offer then for anyone starting up a SaaS company or anything kind of within this space? from day one like what would you suggest they focus on in the short term to get through this phase so
0: i think that um one is don't look to your peers that raised a couple of years ago a lot of people didn't need to have certain types of corporate discipline uh, or product discipline to actually raise they could raise on bad fundamentals or ahead of where the business actually was i would say assume you actually have to prove that the business is viable and should exist um, to raise money these days the second thing is i would say that um, this is a build fast, hire, slow environment. Uh, this, you shouldn't be hiring out ahead of where the business is. And if you get too far ahead, that's when you get in trouble. And the last thing I would say is I've, we're back into an environment where stages do matter, you know, a couple of years ago for the last couple of years, you literally could have seed fundamentals and raise a B or C valuation. We, we saw it all the time, but now. the stages are going to matter. And the way I've always bucketed these things, and yeah, it may may sound a little bit older at this point, but I think it matters in an environment that looks like this. You know, seed is about proving that the idea should exist. A is about proving that people will adopt it and you can convert people from maybe slight usage to paid. B is about proving that you can actually build a company around this, like the go-to-market functions, the, the marketing motions, the partnership activities, all of those sorts of things. And C is about making sure that you can it would scale that company and the entire organization as you grow it, and then you get to the pre-IPO rounds. You know, a lot of that got muddied in the last couple of years when you could have less than a million dollars in revenue and raise a multiple billion-dollar valuation, which is going to lead to a lot of pain in 2022, obviously. But um, you know, that's not going to be available to someone starting today.
1: Right. Right. You mentioned before optimism. Yes, VCs generally uh, tend to take that tack. Um, I don't think we have any of our resident cynics on today as hosts, so you can just feel free to uh, fire away. But yeah, what are one or two uh, you know technologies or trends you're particularly excited about, and where do you think they'll be taking us in you know five or ten years?
0: Um, so I think um, go back to crypto. Um, yeah. I think crypto is going to matter and um, in and it in rightfully should, you, you know, facilitating payments and money movement and all of those things. But I think that right now we're focused on the wrong things. So. Forget ninety nine percent of what you see in crypto, and just think of it as pump and dump garbage type of things. And talk, start looking through what you could do with cross border money movement in such a way that it's not possible to do, to do today. Wires, banking, all that sort of stuff. So that's one I think is going to be interesting. I also think that you know Snowflake ushered in a new era of cloud uh, type computing and brand new um, mechanisms that are going to be available. So we're going to get way more. Real time streaming systems. We're going to get way more easy and facilitated data movement, which will unlock new types of applications out there combined with, you know, edge networks and what will happen on um, data locality closer to people's geos and things of that nature. So that's another, um, which I'm, I'm fascinated by because it again opens up new architectural patterns. Um, I'm super happy to see developers being, um, Thought of on a regular basis in terms of developer experience, you know, for cells and Gatsby's and Netlify's of the world on Java, um, the Jamstack um, today, literally Fastly and Glitch happened. Yeah. It was announced.
1: Yeah, friends of so, the show, you know, good to
0: see. You're starting to see edge networks start to take develop. It's, it's interesting to see, and I, I'm, I'm super happy to see that. I hope to see some of that happening and unlocking in the regulated spaces, like maybe healthcare. Not that this is my space, but. You know, it'd be nice to see developers and entrepreneurs be able to go after that space in a way that right right now it's not possible to go do. That would be interesting.
1: Yeah. I always thought it'd be cool if you could own all of your health data and port it with you, that the blockchain was a useful maybe concept for that, uh, as opposed to calling my old doctor's office, transfer to my new doctor's office, and the old doctor's gone out of business. And it's just like, you know, that doesn't need the speed of Visa, but I'd like ownership of it, and I'd like it to be immutable. My health records have always been something that I feel there's a pain in the butter on
0: that front. I think privacy is going to be a massive aspect that will have to come to blockchains before we start to unlock certain aspects of those things. So I do think yeah. specifically in the blockchain crypto world, you're going to see more sharded and private blockchain type of stuff, along with ZKs or zero proof, um, zero knowledge proofs, privacy things that pop up. Once those things happen, fundamental primitives and building blocks will be available for us to do interesting things. But. Fidelity is never going to want to use the public Ethereum ledger for all of its transactions. No one's going to do that, which, again, goes back to my fundamental flaw in the Bitcoin paper about these the certain assumptions. But once these things happen, you're going to start to see um, actual real innovation that a lot of m- myself included, uh, snarky individuals say uh, you know, Bitcoin fixes this. It right. you will actually see it. But we're still years away from doing that because we've been so focused on. BS pump and dump schemes for the last couple of years.
1: NFTs and tokens for the win. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. We're going to thank somebody who came on Stack Overflow and helped spread some knowledge. Awarded May tenth to defrib. They're getting an error here. Nil requires a contextual type. They're using Swift. If you've gotten that error, well, we have an answer that might just help you out. I am uh, Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions. Podcast is Stack Overflow. We'll shout you out. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps.
2: And I'm Matt Kiananda. I'm a developer advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R on YouTube or Twitter.
0: Uh, Well, Matt, Ben, first, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. You let me rant a little bit about some things, but... Um, You can always find me on Twitter at um, uh, Jason C. Warner Um, happens to be my handle in most places. So you know how to email me at Gmail or find me on GitHub or, you know, Telegram, Signal, Discords all all over the world. So that's me, Jason C. Warner.
1: All right. Well, thanks for coming on and everybody. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon.